The following messages were presented during the Friends of Israel 2008 Prophecy Conferences. It should be noted that a few of our speakers presented their messages with the aid of PowerPoint. I want to talk to you this morning about uh, an issue that uh, is something that's very seldom understood by Christians. And uh, it has to do with the theology of replacement theology. I don't know if you pay attention to the headlines and what's written about Israel, but if you watch the headlines, you may have read some of these headlines. Episcopal Church is the next to shun Israel. And then uh, followed by that was a Presbyterian church to justify Israel divestment. Now, you understand what divestment is? That was a technique that was used uh, against South Africa to try to break apartheid where uh, you stop investing in U.S. Com companies that are doing business with that government. And so here we have uh, Protestant church calling upon uh, people to divest, to stop investing in those companies that are doing business with Israel. For example, Caterpillar is one of the ones that uh, they often mention because Caterpillar sells uh, bulldozers to Israel and, and equipment, heavy equipment. World Council of Churches calls for divestment from Israel, February of 2005. And then in January of this year, I came across this, Methodist Church renews drive for divestment from Israel. Now, this, this whole concept of divestment and, and applying it to Israel, of course, is based on their claim that Israel is a racist nation, right? But nothing could be more from the truth. If you know anything about Israel, you, you know that Israel is a democracy. They give a free vote to both the Jews and the Arabs that live within the boundaries of national Israel today. Uh, Arabs are allowed to, to vote uh, Arab leaders into the Knesset. It is a democracy. It is not a racist nation. Uh, apartheid has to do with a minority of people using their position and power to take economic advantage of the majority of another race. And that is not the case in Israel. But, but yet, the case is made. Now, back in January of this year, there was a conference held, a, a meeting that was preparing for a bigger meeting of Methodist churches that took place in May. And in this meeting back in January, they were organizing to present this issue of divestment to the, to the bigger Methodist church. Um, they based this whole meeting upon a report that was written by a group of ladies in the Methodist church. It was a sponsored by the Methodist church. They paid for the report. But there was a group of women, one of the groups of women in the Methodist church that wrote this report. And uh, this report referred to the creation of the modern state of Israel as the original sin. And that's exactly what the report called it. Now think about that. What was the original sin? Adam and Eve, rebellion against God, right? So what they're saying is that the modern state of Israel should not have come into existence, and the fact that it did was only because man was sinning against God in creating the nation of Israel. Isn't that incredible? Now, they go on in this same report to say this. The Holocaust and the impact of the Holocaust on Israel society has been to cause hysteria and paranoia amongst Israelis. As if the murder of six million people was a minor event in history. And they're claiming that the Jewish people have blown that out of proportion. I would imagine if there was an event in history where six million Methodists have been put to death. They would have a different outlook on the Holocaust. And then, of course, Jimmy Carter, uh, our, one of our former presidents, 
He came out with a book that distorted uh, facts, demonizes Israel, in which he's arguing again for this idea of apartheid. And there are literally hundreds of misstatements, falsehoods, fictional statements in his book were not true. Um, this spring he went to Israel and he defied the Israeli government when he met with Hamas. Now, you may say, why are all of these Christian organizations or Christian individuals involved in picking on Israel and taking a stand to divestment? Well, what's behind all these attacks is a theology called replacement theology. It is a theology that most Christians today aren't aware of. And what replacement theology is basically the belief that the church has replaced physical Israel, the Jewish people, in the plan of God. So, according to those that hold to replacement theology, the church becomes spiritual Israel. Okay? Therefore, the church inherits all of the covenant promises that God made to Israel. But the Jewish people retain all the curses. Remember the covenants that God made to Israel in the Old Testament where he'd say, you keep my covenant and I'll bless you, I'll do all these good things for you, but if you do not keep my covenant, then I will curse you and these judgments will come upon you. So they've carved them up. And they basically said, all those curses, those still stay with Israel. All the covenant blessings belong to the church. All right? So therefore, in Scripture, whenever you read the word Israel, they would say you could really replace it with church. Now, this may not be something you're aware of, but this is what is taught in mainline Protestant churches in the Catholic Church today. They hold to the belief of replacement theology. So there are a number of implications of replacement theology. First of all, the Jewish people as a nation have no place in God's future plan. If God is done with Israel, if he has removed Israel from his plan and inserted the church, then Israel has no future with God as a nation. The implications of that then is this. If God's done with Israel, there is no need for a tribulation or a millennial kingdom. In fact, the prophecies that describe that are problematic. And you can begin to see why they would want us to see Israel not as physical, national Israel, but rather as spiritual Israel, the church. And that is a problem that the church wrestled with as replacement theology began to take hold in the church. And I'll show that to you in just a few minutes. Secondly, the church began with Abraham, not in Acts chapter 2. That's another implication of replacement theology. They see the church as beginning with God's call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Therefore, Old Testament Israel was the church. But again, they don't define Old Testament Israel as physical Israel. They would define it simply as those who put their faith in God. Thirdly, the Old Testament law still applies to the church. Because if the church began with Abraham and continues on today then all that went on in the Old Testament still has application to the church today. Well, that has a number of implications in and of itself. For example, let me explain to you this morning. As I describe church to you, you may be sitting there saying, wait a minute, this isn't my church, or this isn't the church of true believers. I've got to tell you that there are churches of true believers that do hold to this belief. 
But I'm going to use the term church this morning in a very broad sense, and I'll just have to ask you to bear with me on that and, and give me that freedom. That when I talk about church, I'm talking about church more in the way that a Jewish person would see Christianity. Because see, to a Jewish person, Christianity is anybody who has a claim to Christ. So they would define a Christian as a Catholic, a mainline Protestant, or an evangelical, or all to them the same, right? In this discussion of replacement theology, when I refer to the church, I'm going to refer to some churches that you may not feel comfortable calling Christian, but in this discussion, we'll include them, okay? Now, if the Old Testament still applies to the church, have you ever wondered why in a Catholic church, for example, there's an altar up front in the center? It's because the Old Testament law still applies to the church. If the Old Testament law still applies to church, you have to have sacrifice. Where do you make sacrifice? On the altar. And according to the law, man needed an intercessor between he and God. He could not go to God directly. So instead of pastors, they call their pastors priests. That comes from the understanding that the Old Testament law still applies to the church. Not only that, what do you do on the altar? You offer sacrifice. So the church comes to see uh, communion, mass, as a celebration. Each time they celebrate it as the re-sacrifice of Christ. It, it comes to lead the church to believe that the elements are physically the body and blood of Christ, right? All because the church said, God's replaced Israel with the church, and therefore we must deal with the Old Testament. They come to understand the Old Testament by first understanding the New Testament and then reading the New Testament back into the Old Testament uh, to interpret the Old Testament because that's the only way they can really make the argument they're trying to make. If you take the Word of God progressively as God revealed it to us, you don't come out believing in replacement theology, and that's where we are as the friends of Israel. It has other implications. Child baptism. Child baptism, to them, replaces or takes the place of or is equal to circumcision in the Old Testament. Because circumcision was a process by which you placed a child under the covenant of God. And so the church said, we have to have a way to do that for our children. And so they adopted infant baptism to be the way of placing children under the covenant, right, of God. Now, you may say, well, those are churches that, that I don't, our church doesn't practice those things. Well, let me give you one that may have impacted your church. Have you ever heard anybody in your church or anybody uh, in, in your Christian circles you refer to Sunday as the Sabbath day? Right? Yet, if you go back to the scriptures, Sabbath is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. God defined it that way. He gave it to Israel. He said, this is a day of rest. Six days I created, the seventh day you shall rest, Exodus chapter 20. He said, that is the pattern by which you'll live your life. And the church said, because we worship on the first day of the week, we'll redefine Sabbath to be Sunday. And it, it's commonly referred to in our churches as the day of rest, the Sabbath day, Sunday. Sunday is the first day of the week. And there was a reason the church began to meet on the first day of the week, not on Sabbath, right? Because that's the day our Lord rose. Final, another implication. The nation of Israel has no theological reason to exist today. See, what we hold to and believe and what we're here to study, which is God's future plan, has a place for Israel. That is very bothersome to those that believe to replacement theology. 
It really gets under their skin, if you will. Um, because they see no future place for Israel. And so we begin to hear statements out of their camp, uh, things like, the nation of Israel today is a mistake in history. Right? And that statement that the creation of the modern state of Israel is the original sin. That's the kind of conclusions they come to. Now, for those of you that like to see things in pictures rather than in words, on the back of your handout, I have a couple pictures to you to help you understand the difference between what we believe as dispensationalists and what replacement theology teaches. Dispensationalism is simply the belief that God has worked through man in different periods of time in the, the rules or the way of life that, the, that God has given to man and how he should re, relate to him. And uh, typically, uh, it's held there are seven dispensations. Some have more or less. You maybe have gone through a study of that in Sunday school or in church before. We have a poster. If you really want to know more about dispensations, we have a wonderful poster that Richard Emmons uh, created for us that we sell. Uh, I don't know if they have them in the bookstore. I didn't stop in there to see, but you can certainly order them through our catalog. But basically, dispensationalism believes this, that God has two tracks of history, one for Israel and one for the Gentiles. And if you, if you look at this, you'll see that Israel begins with God's call to, to uh, Abraham. And, uh, and he leads them to the land of Canaan. We call it today the Holy Land. And that is the period in which he begins the birth of the nation of Israel. But before long, God takes Israel down to Egypt. And it's there that they really grow up into a nation. By the time they leave, Israel, or leave Egypt, uh, they are a nation of a few million people. Right? God leads them out into the wilderness. He gives them a law by which to govern. And it's the Mosaic law that really covers the period of Old Testament history there in which uh, they are in the promised land, then comes the period of exile because of their unbelief and and their holding to false gods. And then God returns them back to the land and, and they are there a few hundred years before Christ's first coming. During that time, the Gentiles are really in a period of ignorance. And, uh, then we have the coming of Christ, his first coming, his, his death, resurrection, right? Death on the cross, burial, and resurrection. And uh, shortly after that period of time begins a period of scattering of the Jewish people. But that is, is according to what we believe, the church beginning in Acts chapter 2 is the beginning of the church. And we are currently in this church age, right? But we know that the Bible tells us there's a time in which the church is going to be caught up and taken out of this world. We call that the rapture. And with that will come the end of the church age. Now, I'm not here to suggest that there won't be those who will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ during the tribulation. We know that many will come to a saving knowledge. But they will not be the church. The church will be in heaven with its groom, right? The church is the bride of Christ. And Christ said, I am coming back to get my bride so that wherever I am, there she'll be with me forever. So once the rapture occurs, the church is out of, uh, out of this world and in heaven with Christ. And begins a, shortly after that begins a period called the tribulation. Two purposes for the tribulation. Along God's plan for Israel will be to bring Israel to a point of repentance and acceptance of Jesus Christ as Messiah. And then her restoration as a nation again, Right? But the second purpose for the Gentiles that God has for the tribulation is to judge the nations for their rebellion against God and for their treatment of the Jewish people during this time 
we've known as the time of the Gentiles. Now, at the end of the tribulation, Christ's second coming here to earth, and then during the millennial kingdom, we have the restoration of Israel, in which God will take Israel and make Israel the nation above all other nations of the world, and he will establish uh, his throne in Jerusalem and rule the world from there. And for the Gentiles, those believing those who are believers that survive the tribulation will go into the millennial kingdom. And that will last for a thousand years, at which time we'll have uh, the final rebellion of Satan when he's uh, let out of uh, the, the pit and allowed one last time to lead a rebellion against God and against Jesus Christ. And he'll be defeated, destroyed. We have the great white throne judgment, new heavens, new earth. Right? That's how we understand, and just a brief little diagram of how God's plan for history is. But here's how replacement theology sees it. There are not two tracks, but one. And you see, they believe, again, that Israel starts with the call of Abraham. Uh, the birth of the nation of Israel would be the same. But you see, the Mosaic law does not end with Christ. It continues to the church age. And you'll see the church age doesn't begin with Christ's first coming and resurrection, but rather it begins with Abraham's call. Therefore, in the Old Testament times, God was working through physical Israel, but now in the New Testament, God is working through spiritual Israel, the church. And so Israel in the Old Testament was God's chosen people of covenant blessings, but now Israel, the physical people, are the rejected people of covenant curses. The Gentiles who were ignorant in the Old Testament are now the chosen people of covenant blessings. Right? And, uh, and so therefore, you see on this diagram, there is no tribulation, and there is no millennium, because it's not needed. In fact, millennial, exactly what is the millennium, the millennial kingdom becomes a real, real problem for the churches that embrace replacement theology. And they have wrestled with that, and out of that came the view of amillennialism, you know, all millennialism, the belief that the church age is the kingdom of God here on earth, and that at some point Christ will return, judge sinners, and take us on to the eternal state, the new heavens, the new earth. And then along came after that, which is really a pretty negative outlook on life, if you think, because there's no resolution. It's just God comes in, he judges, and that's it. And then postmillennialism came along and said, you know, the church is really the active agent of change in the world. And so what's going to happen is the church is going to have a bigger and bigger impact on the world until we get to a point where all the world believes in Christ. And that will open the doors for Christ to return. It's a much more positive outlook on things, but it's not what the Bible teaches. This is why I call replacement theology the black sheep of Christendom. It is for this reason alone. Replacement theology has led to countless acts of anti-Semitism by the church against the Jewish people over the past 2,000 years. And I cannot emphasize enough the word countless. You may not be aware of this, but there has been a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism carried out by those who claim to be Christians and who claim to be doing it for the Lord. In fact, there's probably not enough room in this room right here to compile all the books to record all of those acts of violence. Now, you may not know that, but Jewish people do. And so the primary reason, if, you, if you've ever tried to get close to Jewish people who have been very cautious about wanting to become your friend, 
This is the primary reason right here. They have lived with a 2,000-year legacy of Christians persecuting them in the name of Christ. And it's because of replacement theology that the Christians have justified that action. And that's why I want to teach you a little bit about replacement theology today and tomorrow morning. This morning we're not really going to get into the scriptures, but tomorrow morning I guarantee you we will as we take a look at this issue. This morning I want to give you a little history lesson and, and take you back in history to understand how does this belief come to become established in the church and dominate the church so much? Well, first of all, replacement theology was not the theology of, of the apostles or the first or second generation church leaders. Okay, It really becomes a doctrine that develops over the first couple of centuries of church and really becomes more established about 200 years after the church begins. But I want to make this point to you. Replacement theology did not come about because of a careful study of scriptures. In other words, the way we are supposed to come at our understanding of the word of God is we study the scriptures and we delve into them and we get all the understanding we can, and then out of that, we begin to form our beliefs of what God is saying to us. Replacement theology was done the opposite way. They began and took a position and then went into the scriptures to try to find support for it. Now, one of the reasons I think replacement theology has been around so long and has become uh, so prevalent in churches is because it has great intellectual appeal. To argue for replacement theology, you have to do some real mental gymnastics with the scripture. I don't believe, even with all that, that they can support it. But I think to intellectuals it has, if you enjoy mental intellectual stimulation, it certainly has an appeal. Replacement theology developed as a justification for prejudice against the Jewish people in the early church. And it comes to become a core doctrine of the Catholic Church, and while our, our Reformation fathers uh, corrected a lot of the bad theology in the, in the Catholic Church, one of the things they brought with them when they left the Catholic Church is replacement theology. How does replacement theology come to become a theology within the local church? Well, there are a number of factors that led to the growth of replacement theology. First of all, the growth and, and transition of the early church. Where does the church begin in Acts chapter 2? Jerusalem. And as it begins in Jerusalem grows, the leadership of the church is Jewish. It is really a Jewish organism, right? And uh, it's, it's dominated by Jewish people. There are a few Gentiles in the church, but predominantly the leadership of the church is all Jewish. And over the first few decades, that's the way it was. We're told that by the end of the first century, in other words, 100 A.D., right? There are about 100,000 Christians in the Roman Empire and about 6 million Jewish people. The church is not what it is today and what we know. It was very small, tiny. By the end of the second century, just another 100 years later, there were about 7 million Jews, or 7 million Christians, it's estimated, and 7 million Jews in the Roman Empire. So you see there's tremendous growth over especially the second century of the church. But almost all that growth was in the Gentile regions and not in the Jewish community. And so there is a transition that takes place in 70, by 70 AD, Jerusalem's been destroyed, the church in Jerusalem's been scattered. 
And uh, there are more and more Gentile leaders coming in to the church and, and taking leadership of the church. And we see a transition taking place from, from being dominated by Jewish leadership to being dominated by Gentile leadership. Then there was another thing that occurred that began to create animosity within the church. There was um, a, a law within the Roman Empire that said this. If a religion existed before the Roman Empire came into existence. When Rome went in and conquered the people, if they had a religion that predated the Roman Empire, that religion was a legal religion. It continued to function openly. But any religion that began after the creation or the formation of the Roman Empire was illegal and must go out of existence. Christianity, of course, gets its start long after the beginning of the Roman Empire, but Judaism was begun centuries before the Roman Empire began. So you have Judaism, which is a legal religion, and Christianity, which is viewed by the Roman Empire as illegal. Now, as, as Rome began to persecute the Christian, Christian leaders would argue that Christianity was not really a new religion, it was just an offshoot or a sect of Judaism. But the Jewish leaders were silent on that issue. And so Rome did not buy that argument. And so Christians began to resent the fact that they're their Jewish neighbors did not come to their defense. And then, the longer that, that Judaism continued after Christianity began, the more the church began to see Judaism as a threat. Because if Jesus Christ is Messiah and Lord, and, and then shouldn't all Jews embrace Jesus Christ as Messiah, and shouldn't Judaism go out of existence? And the longer it continued to be viable as well, more church leaders saw it as, as a real threat to Christianity. And so for a number of reasons, there was this animosity that grew up in the church against the Jewish people. And so about 150 years after the church began, we begin to see it showing up in what some of the church leaders are saying. For example, here's uh, Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyons. He's speaking, and he wrote that the, Christ, the scriptures are not yours. He's speaking to the Jewish people. The scriptures are not yours, but ours. Jews are disinherited from the grace of God. It's a pretty incredible statement. He goes on to make the argument that the church is the new or true Israel. Right? And just a few years later, uh, Tertullian writes a document called Answers to the Jews. And in it, he wrote that God had rejected the Jews, and he uses this phrase, the older will serve the younger, out of Genesis chapter 25, speaking of Jacob and Esau. Remember that statement? And he concludes from that statement that if... Israel has any continuing role, it's as a servant of the church. You can see how they're beginning to, to reach in to the scriptures to, uh, to try to argue against the Jewish people and that God has replaced Israel. Eusebius, now we're into uh, 300 years after the church began, he writes that the Hebrew scriptures are for the Christians, not the Jews. Now, he's not talking about the New Testament, Right? The Hebrew, the Hebrew scriptures, he's also including the Old Testament, were for the Christians, not the Jews. The curses were for the Jews. In other words, in his way of thinking, you can go through the scriptures, you can cut out those sections of curses and give those to the Jews. Everything else belongs to the church. The church is the continuation of the Old Testament and thus has superseded Judaism, he says. Now, if you're with Jewish people, they may ask you if you believe in supersessionism. That's just another word for replacement theology. 
Supersessionism is another term given to replacement theology. And what they're really asking is, do you believe this? Do you believe that God's replaced Israel with the church? And do you believe that God has left all the curses with the Jewish people? How does replacement theology come to be, to be justified by the local church or early church fathers? Well, unfortunately, the, the early church fathers, because they were distancing themselves from anything Jewish, anything Judaism, they began to look at the Bible as a Gentile document, not as a Jewish document. And they turned to Greek culture to find an answer to how do we take the scriptures that seem to say that God still has a plan for Israel and argue the opposite. And so they turned to allegorical interpretation. Allegorical interpretation was being used in, in that day in the Roman Empire. Um, Greek culture still had a great influence and great part in the Roman Empire. And uh, they were taking some of the great classical Greek works like Homer and the Iliad, and they were using allegorical interpretation to reinterpret them to be appealing to the modern society of their day. Okay? In fact, there is a, there is a Jewish man in Alexandria who begins doing this with the Old Testament. And long about 200 years after the church has begun, along comes a man by the name of Origen. He is the first one. Now, some of the church fathers began trying to apply this to Scripture. But Origen's really the first one to come along and develop a system by which to apply allegory to the interpretation of Scripture. Origen argued that there was two meanings to Scripture, the literal sense and a spiritual meaning. And he gave higher value to the spiritual meaning. So if you want to believe what it says literally and be a weaker Christian, go ahead. But if you really want to understand what the scriptures say, then you need to, to, to go and understand the allegorical meaning. Now let me see if I can explain to you what allegory is. Steve Herzig told me this morning that I needed to be done at 45 minutes after the hour. Which means if I take them literally, that means I need to be done in five minutes, 9.45, right? But if I take them allegorically, I would say, Steve didn't really mean 9.45 a.m. this morning. He simply meant sometime in the future, I should complete what I have to say. Which one was it, Steve? <laughs> See, that's allegory. Allegory is simply looking into Scripture and instead of taking what it literally says, giving it a different meaning. One of the problems with allegorical interpretation is there's, there's no uh, rules by which to say this is, we can know for certain this is what the Scriptures mean because you can say it means this to you spiritually and I can say it means something different and neither one can prove the other wrong, right? Then along comes Augustine a few, about 100 years later. And he's significant. Uh, he was influenced strongly, according to historians, um, by Ambrose of Milan, uh, uh, who was a leader in the church, who argued that the Jews were irrevocably perverse and not worthy of any good thought. And he's influenced by Origen in all that he wrote about how to use allegory to interpret Scripture. And what Augustine does is he takes it and packages it into the system we call today all millennialism. He formalizes it all. He writes a book called The City of God, which still has influence today in, in the church. 
He also wrote a book called The Tract Against the Jews, and he argued that the Jews should be treated uh, unmercifully, that they were not valuable, right? And so here's how it plays out. Here's a contemporary of Augustine's, John Chrysostom. He preached a series of sermons. He he was a a famous preacher. He had what they called the golden tongue. He was a great orator. But he preached a series of sermons against the Jewish people, and he accused the Jews of murdering their offspring and worshiping devils. He went on to say that their synagogues were a brothel and a den of robbers. And so he claimed that God hated the Jews because they murdered Jesus and they no longer could repent. And of course, what the church was pointing back to was the events that took place in the first and second century in which the Jewish people, uh, when, they, when they rebelled against the Roman Empire, they were defeated. Uh, their, their temple was destroyed. They were scattered around the Roman Empire. And what more proof did you need that God had rejected the Jewish people and judged them? And so here's, here's, here's the conclusion he came to. Since God hated the Jews, Christians are bound to hate them as well. You want to be a good Christian? You better hate the Jews. Because that's the position God takes. Right? You see how that developed? Up until this point, The church is taking a position against the Jewish people. But keep in mind, it's an illegal religion. It's under persecution by the Roman Empire. It has no authority to do anything about what it believes. And so even though he's arguing that uh, the Jews and the Christians should be bound to hate them as well, the church is still underground. The church is still not in a position to do anything about it. That is about to change And that's where we'll pick up tomorrow morning. Because Steve says, he's literal when he says, be done at 945. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it's not pleasant to see what's been done against the Jewish people in the name of Christ. And Lord, our purpose this morning is not to classify all people of all churches that hold a replacement theology as being wrong or being at fault, but rather to understand how the leadership of these churches and the doctrine that they embraced has had a great impact on Jewish people. If we ever want to reach out to the Jewish community, we need to understand the legacy that the church has left that keeps Jewish people from wanting to befriend Christians because of the fear that those Christians could turn to be their greatest enemies. What a poor reflection upon your name. Lord, may we grow and learn from all that we study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.